Today I'm going to begin with a story. An elderly man in his 80s, sitting at a table eating dinner. Polycarp is his name. He knew his life was in danger. A group of Christians had just been executed in the arena on account of their faith. But Polycarp refused to leave Rome. By the way, the year is around 160 A.D. The Romans were executing any self-proclaimed Christians and pagans were betraying those who knew them to be followers of the way of Jesus. And after the recent execution, the crowd in the arena had chanted for Polycarp's death. A renowned follower of Christ and the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp had become a Christian under the tutelage of John the Apostle. And recently, the Roman proconsul had been looking for him for days, and after arresting and torturing one of Polycarp's servants, they finally learned where he was staying. The soldiers came to his house, but instead of fleeing, Polycarp calmly stated, God's will be done. Polycarp asked that food be brought for the soldiers, and he requested an hour for prayer. And so amazed by Polycarp's fearlessness, especially for a man of his age, the hardened Roman soldiers granted his request, and he prayed for two hours for all the Christians he knew, and for the church and the soldiers, they led him. As Polycarp entered the stadium, several Christians present heard a voice from heaven saying, be strong, Polycarp, and act like a man. But because of his age, the Roman proconsul gave Polycarp a final chance to live, and he, he just had to swear by Caesar and say, Take away the atheists. You see, at that time, Christians were called the atheists because they refused to worship the pagan gods and the emperor. Polycarp looked at the roaring crowds, gestured to them, and proclaimed, Take away the atheists. The proconsul continued, Swear, and I will let you go. Reproach Christ. Polycarp turned to the proconsul and boldly declared, 86 years I've served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul urged him again, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. But Polycarp replied, Since you vainly think that I will swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts, and I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call for them, for we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse, but it is noble to turn from what is evil to what is righteous. Then the proconsul threatened Polycarp with fire, but he responded, you threaten me with a fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched, for you're ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you want. Finally, the proconsul sent a herald to the middle of the stadium to announce that Polycarp was confessing his faith as a Christian. And the crowd shouted for Philip uh, to send a lion against Polycarp, but he refused. And then they shouted for called Polycarp to be burned, and they moved him to the marketplace and prepared a pyre. Polycarp undressed and climbed up, but when they were going to nail him to the pyre, he told them, leave me like this. He who gives me to endure to the fire will also give me to remain on the pyre without the security from your nails. And so they did not nail him, but they tied him. Bravely, Polycarp prayed as the soldiers prepared the wood. 
O Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom you have received knowledge of you, God of angels and powers in all creation, and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I bless you that you consider me worthy of this day and hour to receive a part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. For the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and of body, into the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. Among them may I be welcomed before you today by a fat and acceptable sacrifice. Just as you previously prepared and made known and you fulfilled the deceitless and the true God. Because of this and for all things, I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for ages to come. Amen. The Romans had threatened Polycarp with beasts and with fire, but nothing would make him turn against Christ. After his prayer, the men lit the pyre which sprang up quickly, but even the fire wouldn't touch him as it formed an arch around Polycarp's body. The Romans didn't know what to make of this, and in the end, the Romans commanded an executioner to stab him. A great quantity of blood put out the remaining fire, and Polycarp bled to death. I begin with the story of Polycarp because he was the bishop at the church at Smyrna. The letter we're going to look at today was written to Smyrna. And so I have no doubt that a treasured possession for Polycarp and a, a treasured possession uh, for that particular church was a letter that was penned by Polycarp's mentor in the faith, John. But it was actually composed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to this particular church. And I have no doubt that this letter, the contents of what we're going to look at today, were testifying in the heart of Polycarp that day as he stood before his executioners. And I pray that those same truths will, 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 will be meshed into our hearts and into our lives so that when our own death comes, we'll remember these things and so let's look at the letter to the church at Smyrna, Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna, write this. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and they're not, but they're of the synagogue of Satan... And do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, today we pray for your spirit to work in us as your spirit worked in Polycarp. We pray that the, the, the truths that we consider today would build a faith in us that is unshakable, 
that is all-conquering, full of hope. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, the letter begins with the description of the sender. The words of the first and the last who died, who came to life. And so, so we begin there. Jesus, the one who conquered death. This is his introduction to the church at Smyrna. But before we, we get to the details of that description, let's say a few words about Smyrna. I'm taking this. This is Boos Fanning, a commentator, taking these historical facts just to give us a better setting. He says, The city of Smyrna occupied an extremely favorable site on a large harbor at the end of a long gulf about 40 miles north of Ephesus. It survives today as Izmir, the third largest city in Turkey. And so I went on Google Earth. That was helpful for me. I got to look at this and kind of see where it was located. You can do that as well. Look at the city of Izmir. In the first century, it had the additional advantage of being the northwestern terminus of a major land route leading inland. Listen to these towns. Sardis, there's a letter to there. Philadelphia, a letter to there. Laodicea, a letter to there, and then on to the district of Syria. It chose loyalty to Rome in some of the earliest political changes leading to Roman rather than Hellenistic control over Asia. Uh, Smyrna built a temple to Rome in 195 BC and much later was made the temple warden for a temple to the emperor in AD 26. It uh, was like Ephesus, a thriving commercial center and was regarded as one of the four chief cities, Ephesus, Pergamum, Sardis, and Smyrna. In addition to the temples just mentioned, it had temples and shrines uh, to honor Aphrodite, Apollo, Artemis, Sibyl, Dionysus, uh, Tishi, and Zeus. There was a Jewish population at Smyrna, as was expected in all of the Mediterranean. And a few other connections we have is Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, he wrote a letter to Smyrna uh, around A.D. 110, and then Polycarp served there. The bishop of Smyrna was martyred, as was recorded in what we just read. And so Smyrna is the recipient, but Jesus is the sender, who is described here as the first and the last, the one who died, the one who came back to life. And, and I, I hope you've noticed already as we've looked at a letter or so already that, that these introductions that Jesus gives, they, they connect us back to the vision that John has in chapter one. And so what he sees in chapter one is now being portrayed as Jesus introduces himself to these churches and he describes himself here as the first. In other words, there is nothing before him. There is nothing that is, that is greater than him. No one that precedes him. I am the first. I am the last. There is no one who can outlast me, Jesus says. He's the one who died. He's the one who came back to life. Powerful and purposeful, as we will see as this introduction. James Hamilton writes this. He says, the death and the resurrection of Jesus means that death has no power over him. He is bigger than death itself. And given what the church in Smyrna faces, that reality is one that they must keep in their minds so that they can remain faithful. Think Polycarp. Jesus' victory over death sets the plot for the remaining three verses that come. Jesus is the one who sees their suffering. Jesus, with the, with the flaming eyes as he's introduced in chapter 1, is intimately aware of all that is happening in his churches. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation. And I know your poverty. 
Just as he knew the, the hard work that the Ephesians had done, now he says to the church at Smyrna, I know you're suffering. I know what's going on. These Christians in Smyrna had been persecuted for their faith in Jesus. In this era, it was very common for Christians to be ostracized in the general society. They were refused employment. They were denied places to live. They were denied places to shop. Thus, they often lived lives of poverty. This is why we can read in other portions of the New Testament that the Apostle Paul was collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem. He writes to the Corinthians about giving to this offering because he's trying to put together money to help these poverty-stricken saints who can't find jobs and who are having their land taken from them and all sorts of things that are happening to them. That had not stopped, and it had actually gotten worse over time as Christianity had spread throughout the Roman Empire. Friends, we, we have to work very hard to place ourselves in the shoes of these early Christians, these early Jesus followers. As, as people who have grown up in this world, particularly the West, Western world, the, the Christians have been the gatekeepers of religion. And so it's hard for us to put ourselves in a position where we're not there. We're not the ones who are in the majority, but we're the ones in the minority. But in order for us to truly grab grasp and grapple the weight of, of what these letters communicate, really the weight of what the whole of the New Testament communicates. We have to work hard to, to, to think about what it was like for these first century Christians. Offering a, a powerful twist on their poverty, Jesus reminds them that, that in his economy, that is in the kingdom economy, they're not poor, but they're rich. It's that little parentheses that you find. Why? Because they're laying up for themselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Back in verse 9, Jesus focuses in on one specific aspect of their suffering and tribulation. He mentions that they're enduring the slander of those who call themselves Jews. Jesus' words for these so-called Jews are harsh because he calls them the synagogue of Satan. There's some disagreement, okay, who is Jesus referencing? What, what we do know for sure is that, that he's referencing a specific group of people that were causing issues for the Christians here in Smyrna. And so let me give you my understanding of these people. They are Jews. They are Old Testament practicing Jews who are working with the pagan authorities to malign, to defame, to oppose to tattle or snitch, whatever word you want to use, on these Christians because they're refusing to worship the emperor. They're refusing to worship the pagan gods because they'll worship Christ and Christ alone. Now, in that Roman world, the Jews, they had an exemption from that. The Jews were given an exemption that they could worship Yahweh and they didn't have to offer sacrifices to the emperor. They didn't have to offer sacrifices to the pagans. But that, that exemption was not passed on to Christians who came out of Judaism to follow Jesus. And so Jesus offers here a pretty damning picture. You probably remember in the Gospels, the synagogue was the place where the Jews would gather. It was the place where, where Jesus went and they opened the scrolls and they learned about Yahweh and they learned about the Old Testament. 
Jesus grew up attending the synagogue in Nazareth. All of the, the apostles would have grown up attending synagogues in their cities. But, but Jesus has this to say about the Jews and their place of worship in Smyrna. He says, this is a synagogue of Satan. They've chosen their side. They've chosen their king. They've rejected me. And in rejecting me, they're following Satan himself. And that may seem very harsh, but think about it this way. It was, it was the Jews. It was Caiaphas. It was the Sanhedrin who worked with the, worked with the pagan authorities, Pontius Pilate, to see Jesus crucified. And now, once again, it's repeating itself uh, that, that the Jews are, are working with the pagan authorities in Smyrna to see these Christians persecuted, to see them murdered and martyred for their faith. And Jesus takes their continued rejection and the pain that he is causing the people that he loves very seriously, very personally. One thing that's important to note as we consider the letter to Smyrna, Jesus offers no rebuke. There, there's no correction that he offers them. The same will be true uh, for Philadelphia, but instead he shares deeply encouraging and personal preparatory words for this church that he loves. He opens in verse 10 with words that are easier said than done. He encourages them, don't fear the coming suffering. Don't fear it. Now, now we'll, we're going we're gonna to come back to that idea in a moment, but what does that communicate? It's only going to get worse, guys. You're suffering now, but there is coming more suffering and so Jesus is open and honest with him. He actually outlines the worst suffering that is coming, offering the church at Smyrna a glimpse into their future. He, he says, some of you are about to be thrown into prison and be tested. Now to be thrown into prison means more than just rotting away in a damp and dingy cell. Be, being thrown into prison in this context means that's the first step to your execution. That it will end in your death, dying for the name of Jesus. But he offers a strange detail. He says, for 10 days, you will have tribulation. 10 days doesn't sound that bad. A week and a half, I might be able to handle that. And that's the point that Jesus makes. Does he mean for us to take that literally that it's 10 days? I don't think so. I think what Jesus is giving us here is a, is a bit of a figure of speech. At one, one point Jesus intends to make by saying 10 days is the days are set. I know the end of these days. That yes, you will suffer and it will be painful, but there is an end. It, it will come to an end. And that he chooses 10 days also means to communicate that their suffering will be short. I think of that their suffering will be short into comparison with the glory that, they'll in, that they will enjoy. I, what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory. It's just 10 days. He offers then a promise to those who are faithful to death that they'll receive from him a crown of life. Hamilton again powerfully expounds on this. He says, Jesus is worth dying for. 
And if he's worth dying for, then he's worth living for. Only those who are gripped by something worth more to them than life can truly be courageous. And courage is precisely what Jesus calls the church at Smyrna to be in their command. He's proclaiming to them that he is better than life. And he writes later, this is the only way to life. Death. Death to self. Death to sin. And then you'll be dead to the world. You'll be dead to fear. You'll also be alive to the power of the Spirit through faith in Jesus. And this all leads to Jesus' final statement and promise to the church. Once again, he pleads that they would listen to his words. If you have ears, listen, pay attention. And here's the word of promise. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. From the context, the conqueror here is the one who remains faithful even to death. The one who receives the crown of life is the same one who avoids the second death. What, which, which, what is the second death? It's, it's eternal separation from God and all that is good. It's separation from the goodness of God. That is the second death. This conclusion packs a punch, especially in light of, of what Jesus begins with. His own self-revelation from the opening. Remember, how does he introduce himself? I'm the one who overcame death. I'm the one who conquered it. And he concludes by reminding them that those who are in him, they cannot be hurt by it either. Where's the sting? Where's the victory, Paul would write? His concluding promise brings us back to that instruction in verse 10. Do not fear death. See, when our life is hidden in Christ, when we're in Him, when our trust is in Him and His death, His resurrection being our death and our resurrection, what is there to fear? When there awaits eternal life and the promise of a crown of life, what is there to fear in this reward that is promised to the followers of Jesus? As others have said before, for the Christian, death is it's a doorway. It's a door we walk through that leads us to something far greater. Something free of suffering that we would feel in this life. And so as we sit here today in our heated and very comfortable situation, with, with no real fear at this point of persecution, not the kind of persecution that's going on in Smyrna at least, what do we take away from this letter that is it's beautiful, it's, it's powerful, it's, it's intimate? That, that Jesus, the Savior, writes to the people he loves who he knows many will soon be dead. I just want to give you three things. One, Jesus sees and cares about the suffering of his people. When Jesus says, I know your tribulation, 
and I know your poverty. My friends, those words should bring encouragement to those who are battling cancer and undergoing treatment to know that your Savior says, I know. I know you're suffering. Uh, to those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, Jesus says, I, I know. I know your tribulation. To, to those who are dealing with, with struggles within the family, relational issues and things that are going on in your life, Jesus says, I know. I know what's going on. I'm aware. And to those around the world who are enduring persecution like Smyrna. See, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are meeting in secret today because if they're found out, they will be executed. And Jesus says to them, I know. I know. In suffering, we feel alone. We feel as if Nobody gets this, and Jesus assures us that we're not alone in our suffering and pain because even if nobody else in this world knows, he knows, and who better to know? So where are you suffering today? Where are you heartbroken today? Be reminded that Jesus knows, and, and, and this is why we just keep coming back to him, <laughs> because he's such a good and loving Savior. And he understands. Second thing I'd like to share is that persecution and suffering, well, that is the way of Christ. Je Jesus is up front with us in the Gospels. We, we've, we've bought into a very um, Americanized gospel over the last few decades. But, but Jesus in the Gospels, he says, if you want to follow me, well, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head. If you want to follow me, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Live in obedience to me. And it's not going to be easy because if the world hates me, the world will hate you. And, and so Jesus tells us up front, you want to follow me, it's going to be difficult. That's the way of Christ. We do all we can to avoid pain and discomfort. And I think there's just a natural inclination there. I understand that. But what we learn from Smyrna and other places in Scripture is that suffering is what follows the pattern of Christ's life. And if we're going to be like Christ, if we're going to follow Christ, then we're going to follow him in suffering. We're going to go through trials, we're going to face persecution. We're going to deal with things that are difficult. And so following Christ means we have to get comfortable with discomfort. I think about Paul. I've often marveled at his words in, in Philippians where he says that, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. I get that part, but then he says, but I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. Paul says, I want to suffer and experience what Jesus experienced. That's the call of being a follower of Jesus. It's the pattern in our life that suffering is inevitable. Suffering is what happens when we follow him. Uh, me and um, Jason Mastin have been reading this book. Um, the book's called The J-Curve. And uh, 
It's written by Paul Miller, an author that I've greatly enjoyed, but, but he just gives this very simple picture of a J that helps to illustrate, and we'll probably dig deeper into this at some point in the future, but I just thought I would share. It's helped me to illustrate what it means to die with Christ and to rise to new life. And so, Amos, all of you throw that up there. I just want to show you this. It's just a J, but this is the pattern of Christ's life. As, as Dustin was talking about just a little bit earlier, he was born into humanity. He lowered himself. He became a man. He died on the cross, but he rose to new life. It's a picture of a resurrection. That's the pattern we follow in suffering, isn't it? In suffering, it's a humbling experience and we die, but what are we promised in Christ? Resurrection. That, that means that my whole life I'm promised a resurrection. That, that the death that I will die, it will be followed by resurrection. I love this quote. Our willingness to die to receive death, the death that God has given us, keeps us from running from suffering. We outfox evil by receiving what threatens us. What am I to fear? Because I can only go so low and then resurrection is coming. But I want you to also understand it applies not just to our, our physical death, but every moment of suffering we go through. Man, my family got COVID and it was rough and we were sick, but Jesus promises that no matter how bad that is, I'm going to bring a resurrection to this. I'm going to work this evil into good. There's something I'm going to produce from this. And so every trial we face, friends, we're meant to follow the pattern that Jesus followed in his life of death and resurrection. That is the promise he makes to Smyrna, that life is coming. And so my third point is this. Christians should not fear death. I've wrestled, and I continue to wrestle with this one. You know, in my, in my teen years, in my 20s, in my 30s, I, I didn't really even think about death, my own death anyway. As a pastor, I have... I have walked with many people, many families through death. I've been there. I've had the honor of being in the room, in the hospital room or in the home when, when people have passed from this life to the next. And, and I've opened up God's word and I've shared truth with them and reminded them of, of resurrection and all the promises that, that are made to us. But now that I'm 40, Yeah, some of you are like, you're not even close, buddy. <laughs> some days I feel close. Death, death is more on my mind. I, I consider my own demise, I consider my own death, and, and I have to go to battle to take all of those truths that I've shared with others so freely, so hopefully, <laughs> to take them and apply them to my own life so that death isn't something that I fear. I need to know these truths and we all have to do these things so that when the time comes and the doorway is in front of us, we won't reluctantly walk through. We will full of joy because we know what's coming in a resurrection we will follow Jesus into death 
and into eternal life. We need not fear death because we are in him. This letter, this word from Jesus, my hope and my prayer is that it can build into our lives the faith that it built into Polycarp. That even if that's the death we face, on a pile of burning wood, that we'll gladly accept the death that leads to the crown of life. I'm gonna ask you to bow with me this morning. Just want to give us a moment to let some of these things sink in. Your battle may be fear. You're fearful of it. And you need these truths to to settle deep into your heart so that there's nothing to fear in it anymore. You may be resisting the suffering that Jesus is bringing into your life and and you know, you hear people say it, you read the passages, oh, it's for your good. But you're still not willing to embrace it. Maybe today's the day to embrace it and say, okay, I'll embrace the suffering because it will lead to resurrection. Maybe you're just here today and what you need to hear Jesus say, I know your tribulation. Don't listen to me say it today. Listen to him say it today. I know your suffering, I know your pain, you're not alone. Give him praise for it. I want to give us a moment to pray.